So today's lesson is from Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. And it's going to be talking about loving your neighbors. And before we get started, we want to have a word of prayer. Lord, we're so thankful to have this opportunity that we can come and we can worship you by studying your word. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to be able to dig into your word, understand it, glean some knowledge from it. Lord, I pray that you would allow me to speak for you. Allow your Holy Spirit to speak in what I say that others may understand in such a way, Lord, that they are able to take this and then go forth and be different because of the preaching or teaching of your word today. I pray, Lord, for those that are in the community who are sick with viruses and other things, Lord, that you be with them. Those that are in the hospital, I pray for them. I pray, Lord, right now in this time of turmoil in our nation, that, Lord, you would have those who are Christians rise up and support the things that are right, do the things that are right. Uh, Lord, in the time of election period that we're going through now, we pray, Lord, that you convict the, the souls of those Christians, that they vote the right way, that your word would be free to be preached. Lord, that lives would be saved, that young, unborn children could be saved and not sacrificed to the sin of Satan by murdering these unborn children. I pray, Lord, earnestly for those things. I pray, Lord, now you'd help us to understand how we should look at how we can help others. That's what the lesson is about today, Lord, and we pray that you help us to be able to understand it better. We pray, Lord, for the teaching and preaching of your word today, that it have free reign in the hearts and minds and souls of all those who would hear it today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, thank you so much for your time and your attention. Uh, you know, let me give you an illustration of this lesson today. There was a uh, couple who went to Lowe's to purchase a new grill. They saw one that was on sale. It was already pre-assembled. And uh, they had the grill lined up out there outside the Lowe's. If you're a Lowe's like mine, you know what I'm talking about. And they pulled up right in front of it where they were going to go inside and pay for it and then come out and put it in. They they drove a, they had a uh, a Subaru Forester. And so they drove and they parked in front of the thing. They went inside and paid for it. They came outside. The clerk came outside to load it into the vehicle and it was just too big. It couldn't go in. No matter what way they did, it was an inch too big to get in that car. And so as they were sitting there contemplating what they were going to do with it, there was another couple that was at a pickup truck, an older couple, solved the problem. And um, they said, uh, you know, hey, uh, we can take it to your house for you if you need help. Um, the couple said, the young couple said, but hold on, uh, I appreciate that, but uh, you don't have to do that. No, 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 no. They said, no, we, we can do that. They said, well, we live 15 miles from here. And they said, well, you know, well what else can we do? Well, we, we can be glad to help you. So they loaded it up on the truck, and they took it to their people's house. And once they got there, the young couple, of course, tried to pay them for their money, for their gas or whatever, and the couple refused and said, no, uh, it wouldn't be a good deed if you paid us. And with that, they thanked them for the help and left. Now, how many times have we seen little issues out there where people needed help, and we have the ability to help them, but don't want to get involved. Now, I know in our society today, we're so busy, so busy doing so many things 
uh, that it really is difficult. We have to stop. We have to make an effort to stop doing what we're doing to do it. I mean, you may remember I've, I've told you before there's a there's something called the Eisenhower principle. And what the President Eisenhower found was that we spend all our time on the urgent and not taking care of the important. And that the urgent is really what other people need and the important is what we need. So we spend, we have to have a find a time. I have a message on that. We need to find a time. How do we make the important urgent? So I'm just saying sometimes we get so busy doing the urgent things that we don't take care of what's important. So, I mean, how many times have you been walking by and you see somebody that has a need and you just walk by them thinking, well, somebody else will help them or, you know, or quickly turn your head and walk the other way hoping that uh, you don't have to be asked for it. You know, um, so today, though, in this lesson today, we're going to take a look at, you know, who our neighbor is and what that might mean. See, this couple, this older couple became neighborly to this couple, even though they met, they lived 15 miles away from them. So clearly they were neighborly to them, even though they were not in their neighborhood. So let's uh, let's pursue the, the, the scriptures. Now, let's look at this passage of scripture in Luke chapter 10. Let's look at the background before you get there. So in Luke 9.51, Jesus has begun his final journey toward the cross. Luke 9.51 says, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from this point on, all the stuff here is his journeying towards the cross. This is his final push, you could say. The second thing we see in Luke 10.1, Jesus has sent out 70 witnesses to him because it was ending his time. He's got to make sure, remember, God's plan for witnessing to the lost is you. That's right. God's plan is not the church. God's plan is you, the Christian. The plan for the church is to get people to come to train them that they go out. So the objective for winning the lost is not the church to win the lost, not the church people in the church building, not to get them into church so that they will be one, but to get the church into the people so that they go out and win the loss. The objective is it's supposed to be an evangelical training center to help spread the gospel. Um, so Jesus sent them out. It says in Luke 10, 1, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. So he sent them up ahead, emissaries, missionaries, to go in front of him to the different towns to find to, to preach the gospel, to, to make ready. The Savior is coming. Isn't that what we should be preaching today? Jesus is coming back. Shouldn't we be going into the streets? And, 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 and witnessing to people. And I don't mean, I'm not really big on favor of door knocking today because I think that we live in a different time in society. But where we go, the people that we meet, our neighbors, our, our, our people in the community, take a stand. There's all kinds of ways of witnessing. By the way, I've got a message on evangelism that I've uh, got ready that the Lord doesn't allow me to speak. But next Sunday, Lord willing, I'm supposed to be at uh, Grant's Chapel in um Seven of the Springs, and I have this message that I am tending to preach on uh, uh, the uh, uh, on evangelism. So anyway, maybe I'll share it with you sometime. But um, so we see that after the, he sent them out to all the different places, it says the seventy returned with great news in Luke ten seventeen. 
said, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Let me tell you, we run into devils all the time, don't you? People that are anti-Christ, they're against the gospel today. These are devils. The devils control them. And even the devils can't reject the truth of the gospel. They can say what they want to say, but they can't counteract the truth of the gospel. Our, we serve a living Savior. He's in the world today. We know that he's living no matter what men may say. See, um, we see in verse 21, Jesus shares the conflict now between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. See, he sent these men out into the streets to, 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 to witness to people, to make ready. And we see that there's a difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. There's always been that way. It says in the in verse 21a, in, the, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. He said, I thank the Lord that the eternal kingdom of God is revealed in these simple-minded people and not in those who make themselves to be wise and prudent people, but in that, in the, the, the simple-minded. The gospel is simple. The wise stumble over it. Men seeking themselves to be wise become fools, the Bible says. Genesis, Jesus, uh, Luke 10, 23 and 24, as we get towards closer to our lesson now, right? Jesus then tells them, uh, tells them that they are blessed. And he turned him into his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. And on that context, today's lesson begins. So if you turn to verse 25, chapter 10, verses 25 through 28 for the first part of it. Verse 25a. And he says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. And behold, while Jesus was teaching his disciples, he says, And behold, say, and behold. So here he was, Jesus was teaching his disciples. They just returned from their mission trip. And suddenly, in the middle of that, a man stood up to ask the question. Now, by the way, this is not necessarily an unusual occurrence. For in this time, it was customary that if someone had a question while they were preaching or teaching or expelling the gospel, the, not the gospel, well, the good news. As they, gospel means the good news. But as they were teaching from the scriptures, and hopefully it was good news, uh, that someone could stand up and then they'd be recognized. They don't interrupt them. They stand up to ask a question. So while Jesus was talking to his disciples, suddenly one of this, this lawyer stood up. It says a certain lawyer stood up. Now, this man was not lawyer in the sense of he didn't try cases and of, of civil law uh, or criminal law, but this man was a, in those days, these lawyers were current Jewish law experts. You know, mostly religious Jewish customs and the Mosaic laws. So he clearly knew the Mosaic laws, five books of the Bible, or the Pentateuch. He also knew the Jewish customs. Well, it's like 365 different things he had to know. He was an expert at following the Jewish customs and the law of the day. 
And it says that, and this lawyer stood up and tempted him. Now, this kind of shows you the purpose of the question. The man was about to ask two schools of thoughts on this. Um, you know, was it his intent to get Jesus to say something that the religious leaders, uh, you know, wanted to charge Jesus that they could use? It's possible. Uh, and if that was the case, it's uncertain whether he did this on his own or somebody put him up to it. That's one possible school that he was looking to try to trap Jesus in something. But there's another possibility, and what I kind of lean towards, that, that it's possible that the lawyer himself had doubts about his own merit. Having heard Jesus say that these things about the eternal about eternal life has been revealed to the babe, not the lawyers, not the, the kings and the prophets, but to these people here. Not those people who were knowledgeable, but to the people that didn't know anything. God came and revealed himself. And he said, then, then I'm one of the other category. So no doubt he probably wondered about what Jesus had said and how that applied to him. And he probably had his own doubts about eternity. Um, we'll continue on that in just a moment. And so the last part of verse 25 says, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? See, that's why I'm telling you, I believe his question or his tempting him was more quizzing him to better understand that he felt himself inadequate. Because see, the wisdom of the world will leave you lacking, folks. The wisdom of the world will leave you wanting. Because it's not through the wisdom of the world that a man is saved, but but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what saves men's souls, not their wisdom, not their knowledge, not anything that they can do. It's the death of Jesus Christ on the cross that covered, that washed away your sins, and then God given faith to you to accept it. For no man can be saved without they first being drawn away. The Holy Spirit works in their lives to convict them. It's a miracle. People say, I don't believe in miracles. Believe in miracles. I believe in miracles. I'm saved. I'm a miracle. Being saved is a miracle. God took this wicked man who had no hope and no thought, no way of being able to understand the truth of the gospel and revealed it to me at 10 years of age, 50 years ago, this month. So I'm, I just thought about that. So 50 years, I'm selling right 50 years of being a Christian, new birth, this month. Matter of fact, I believe it was somewhere in this week time period that it happened. So I'll have to look that up because I'm interested in that myself. But, but the point is, I'm a miracle. So we see that uh, this guy said, you know, that, that, that he said, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But his question was wrong. What shall I do is the problem. You can't do anything. But yet, here's what the phrase says. The phrase is not unusual because he said, Master saying master, and that was not unusual because everybody obviously recognized Jesus as a, as, a, as a teacher, as a great man, as someone sent from God. Um, at least the crowd did. So the, his phrase master is at least an outward respect. And we know the crowd believed that Jesus was a rabbi, and so it would definitely have been un, it would not have been inappropriate for them to have criticized him if they did not do so. That's the problem I have today with people criticizing the, the I mean, using foul language or or not or rude language to address the president of the United States. You may like or not like the president of the United States. And 
There's people who do and people who don't. And that's whether it was the former president or the current president or the one to come. It doesn't matter. There's a matter of respect that that office deserves. You understand? Same is true for your governor. Same is true for your pastor. Same is true for your, your, your if you're in school, your teachers, children. There's a matter of respect that is earned by that position. Whether you have value that person or not is a different story. It's their position. And so this guy recognized that Jesus was in that position and called him master. And then he asked that question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Um, this is a question that most all mankind think about. Now, isn't it? You know, there was a Pew Research poll that was done that says 72% of Americans believe in heaven. 72%. But only 38% believe in God. What? <laughs> only 38% of Americans believe in God, but 72% of Americans believe in heaven. Eight or believe believe in heaven. Eighty percent of people believe in an afterlife. So I'm not what should the other eighty other eight percent believe and not believe in heaven. What do they believe? I don't know. Maybe reincarnation or something. I don't have an idea. But anyway, eighty percent believe in afterlife. So it's interesting that the researcher concluded. We looked at this data and looked at the numbers, and he looked at a lot of the people involved in this. Was that millennial generation? And he kind of, their lack of religious faith, yet they still had a strong belief in the afterlife. And this was his conclusion. He said, quote, It was interesting that fewer people participated in religion or prayed, but more believed in an afterlife. It might be part of a growing entitlement mentality, thinking you can get something for nothing. Thinking you can get something for nothing. So these people believe that they're going to get eternal life just because. Well, you know what? They are right. They are right. They will get eternal life. See, the soul that liveth, it will die only in the pit of hell. It doesn't destroy it. It says it will live forever where the worm never dies. See, we will live somewhere forever. So yes, we will have eternal life. Yes, there is an, there is an afterlife. There are those who accept Jesus Christ and his blood and his sacrifice that will go into his kingdom, into his reign, into his armor, into his bosom, into heaven, and then all the rest, unfortunately. And we don't say this with, with joy. We say it with sadness. All the rest will go into a place that's called hell, a place with a lake of fire which burns forever and in torment. You will live somewhere, folks, either in heaven or you'll live in hell. But you're going to live eternally. So these 72% of people, or 80 people believe, 80% of the people in America that believe in afterlife, they're right. There is one. But I'm telling you, you want to know which, you want to make sure you're ready for that afterlife. And so this young man said, what must I do to inherit the eternal life? What must I do to inherit, to earn, to be given the inherit life, eternal life? So it says in this case, it could also be that the man's belief in how to get challenged and to get to how to get saved was challenged. So remember Luke 20 and 22, he says, notwithstanding in this rejoice not, Jesus said, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. This is what Jesus had told his disciple that this young man heard, this ruler, this lawyer heard, but rather rejoice because your name are written in heaven. 
In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, O Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, hast revealed them unto babes. And even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight, all things are delivered to me and my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will relieve, reveal him. So he said, because your names are written in heaven. See, this man heard Jesus say that he had the keys, he had the way, he had the knowledge of how to write your name in heaven. That concerned him. This most directly to him, because he was the wise and the prudent. So in verse 26, he says, he said unto him, what is written in the law? Jesus said to the, to the young man, because the guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus asked him, you're a lawyer. You're a lawyer. So what's written in the law? What do you read? How do you read it? What do you think it says? Now, interesting, Jesus did not rebuke the man for the question, because that's a valid question. Before you can get saved, you must be lost. You know, you must have a desire. If people don't have a belief that there's an eternal life, they're not going to worry about eternal hell. But since 80% of the people in America believe in an afterlife, we're in good shape, folks. We got plenty. Even people say, well, I don't know if I believe. They might not believe in God, but they believe. Obviously, they don't believe in God. 38% of people say believe in God. But then the question is, then what are you going to do about afterlife? What happens after this? Uh, so Jesus doesn't rebuke the man. It's one of the most important questions a person can ask. So, but before Jesus gives them an answer, he's doing like as a teacher, you know, we as a teacher, we learn to do pretest. Um, and so Jesus asked him the question. Now Jesus already knew the answer, uh, but he needed the man, the individual, to recognize his needs and recognize what his problem was. So Jesus, knowing the man to be a lawyer and an expert, uh, ask him, what does the law say? Well, in verse 27, the man answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, with all thy neighbor, and thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, so he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy 65. And then in Leviticus 19, 18 says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So we see this man combined Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18 to, to come up with that phrase. But he also adds a phrase in there that wasn't included in Deuteronomy 6, 5. He said, And with all thy mind. See, not only did he say, Thou shalt love the Lord God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, but he says, and with all thy mind. You know, we have a, a we're one of the, my, my website here that I run is entitled uh, The Battle is Within. There was a person who wrote the book entitled Battle for the Minds. Because in the end, it's what you do with the gospel, not with the gospel, what other people do to you. It's not what other people do to you that matters, it's what you do with the gospel. It's what you do with Jesus. It's not what other people do with Jesus. It's what you do with Jesus. It's what you do with your life. And so this man recognized that. He said, and with all thy mind. That means your mind has to be controlled by God. So, uh, you know, you must always think of serving God in everything that you do. And that's what the man said, I try to do. 
interesting enough, Jesus did not rebuke him for that. Jesus knew the man. He knew his heart. He knew his life. So he said to him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. So Jesus said, Okay, I agree. You're right. Do those things, and you'll, the, what you answered was correct. If you can do those things, you'll live. So Jesus tells him that he's quoted the scripture correctly. He now tells him, You should now do those things, right? Okay, you're right, but now you got to do it. So he's like, you're right. You gave me the answers. That's exactly right. That's how you will inherit eternal life. If you love God with all your mind, your heart, your body, your soul, and your mind, and you love your neighbors yourself, you'll inherit eternal life. You will. You'll go to heaven. Sure you will. Now do it. And when you do it, you'll obtain eternal life. So he says, now, Notice this is not a picture of work salvation. Someone says, ah, ah, you can work your way in. No, because it talks about in your mind, in your soul, in your mind. Those are not physical things that you can do. Those are things that you believe. Those are things that you receive from God. For you can't do that on your own. You can't do that part. You can't do uh, where it says, uh, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. That's not a work. With all thy soul. That's not a work. With all thy strength, that's not a work. With all thy mind, it's not a work. Love thy neighbor as thyself. This is love. This is something inside of you. This is not an outward thing. Now, will loving God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and your link result in activities that's outward? Yes, it will. But it's a result of not, it's not backwards. You don't do this to do this. You do this because of that. You understand? And that's what Jesus understands. I think the wise young man, I think the, the lawyer understood that too. For he says, uh, um, well, look, says, by the way, so it says, there's no way this is work salvation. Um, no way a person can love the Lord. Look, Romans 12, 2 says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Your mind must be transformed into a new mind. All your mind, he said, right? Jesus said, you're right. All your mind. But you got to transform that mind. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made into the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and came obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and, and, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, if you're saved, your mind, all your mind, yes, your mind is changed. You have that mind of Christ, yes. That's exactly how you get to heaven. You change your mind. It's been transformed. Jesus said, you're right. He told that lawyer, you're absolutely right. That's exactly how to get into heaven. But now do it. The man didn't know how to do it. See, he understood the need, but not how to do it. Verse 29, he says, but he, now, so he thought about that, but he willing to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he's thinking, okay, I'm not sure. I don't feel good about this. 
I gave me answer. He said, do it. Now, how do I do this? Okay, so hold on. I got to do all these things. But the first thing he jumped to was the physical act of doing my neighbor. Well, hold on. Now, does that mean I got to do, I don't, I don't do those things. I don't. I may love God, all those things. But when it comes to helping others, I'm limited in who I'm willing to help. Right? I'm limited in who I'm willing to concern myself with. See, this pricked this man's heart because he knew he was not right with God in the sense that some kind of distaste for others. He would not have asked this question if he had not been. He had some type of prejudice. Let me tell you, folks, prejudice today is sin. If you look at a person because of the color of their skin, whether that be black, white, Asian, whatever, Hispanic, whatever, if you look at somebody based upon the color of their skin, you are not right. That is not God's desire for you. He, you, you, you have a problem. This man had a problem of some type of, of, of racism or something that was holding him back. See, he did not have a pure heart because with a pure heart, you get rid of that stuff. If you have, Anna, if you have these problems of, of, of racism, now, some people would say that that's about the, there's a difference between loving somebody. There's sometimes, I think it comes down to behavior. As an example, homosexuality. We love the homosexual. Absolutely. They're sinners just like the rest of us. They fall on that 80% that believe in heaven but don't believe in God. The 38% that believe in a, that don't believe, if they believe in God, they're not answering to him because the Holy Spirit can't dwell in that environment. The Holy Spirit can't dwell within a person. Can a homosexual be saved? No, they cannot. I agree with John, John MacArthur said. They can't be because that's conflict of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not let them. I don't want to get off on that tangent. My point is, you still love them. This young man, this lawyer here, God, Jesus loved him. He was lost, but he loved him. This man had a hatred for somebody for some reason. Don't have a hatred towards people because they're the home. They might be homosexuals or something else. They're sinners and they need to be loved. Don't condone the sin, but love the sinner. Have compassion on them. I would hate. I feel terrible empathy, not empathy, but sorrow for those people who are confused in that way. See, Satan has blinded their eyes and have confused them. They don't know better. They don't know better. They would argue with me that that's not the case, but I know the truth of the gospel, and I feel pity for them, and I don't have hatred for them. I don't know how they could be conceived, could, could be confused in that way, and I feel, I feel compassion for them, not hatred. You understand? They need the Savior badly, and we need to pray for them. And uh, But anyway, we'll get there. He also wanted to limit the extent of what was being asked of him. You know, hold on, I don't want to do everybody now. Jesus changed the phrase to, who is my neighbor? So, you know, who is my neighbor? Um, the, the passive form, being those I choose to see as a neighbor, is the passive form, right? Who is my neighbor? Uh, the, the, the guy said, who is my neighbor? So it's, it's, if you use that as a passive form, it means I choose to see my neighbor. Who do I choose to see? Who is my neighbor? My next door neighbor is this, the next door neighbor. That's my neighbor, right? Or do we do as an active phrase, which being I come in contact with, everybody I come in contact with becomes my neighbor. If I see you, you're my neighbor. If I come in contact, if I walk by you in a store, you're my neighbor. If I see you with a need, you're my neighbor. See, 
So verse 30, Jesus then answered and said, a certain man went down, and he's going to give him a parable. You know, he's going to give him a parable. Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jericho, Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his remnant and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. While traveling to Jerusalem, Jesus tells the story about people traveling to Jerusalem. See, Jesus was a super, obviously he's God. And so he used, they were all traveling to Jerusalem. And so he used the story about traveling to Jerusalem. No doubt some of these people had traveled these roads to get to where Jesus was. And so he's talking about this road. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles of rugged and dangerous terrain. Uh, the altitude decreased 3,000 feet, and there were many caves and rocky places for thieves to hide. You truly are going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Travels were continually in danger, uh, which explains why the Jewish man was attacked. So we see verse 32, 31 32. And by chance, by chance, just happened to be, there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levi, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. So we see the same day, two other men were also going down the road. A priest, he served in the temple, he offered sacrifices to the Lord, and then he saw the man lying on the road and he passed by on the other side. This man had just finished his work in the temple. He was coming down from Jerusalem and he sees him. And not to be involved, not to get up tied up with him, not to touch him. He goes on the, he not only does he not pass by him, he makes a deliberate effort to go to the other side of the road. He makes a conscientious effort to not help him. See, there's a difference. Not helping people that you can't help or not knowing that they need a help is one thing. But knowing they need help or not even be concerned to see if they need help. How many times do you see somebody that looks like they might be in distress and you say, I'm just going to ignore them, I'm turning my head, I'm walk away. Or do you go to them and say, can I help you? Uh, then they, we also see a Levi. Levi was a non-priest whose responsibility was to take care of the temple. You know, he too saw the dying man, but passed by on the other side. So now here's a non-priest who's responsibly taking care of the temple. He took care of the temple. This one guy interfaced with God and passed by on the other side. This is another religious person. So the first one you can look at is the as the pastoral or the, the preacher. The preacher come by and pass by on the other side didn't want to get involved. Then the next one was the churchgoer, you could say. The Levi, right? The one who worked, a worker in the church. Not just a churchgoer, but a church worker who passed by. I certainly hope that our pastors and our preachers and I mean our, and our, our church workers care enough about people that they would concern themselves to see what their needs are. They didn't even want to see what the man's needs were. You know, um, now, since the man was on the road described as being half dead, they may have thought that he was already dead and didn't want to defy themselves. So they just looked, went around him, and kept going. They did not view this man's problem as their own problem, Right? They did not view this man's problem as their own problem. So now we go to verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and he saw him and had compassion on him. Uh, a Samaritan is a Jew who mixed or uh, uh, married among the other nations. They weren't pure blood. They were members of the community, the community of the Jews, and they're now nearly extinct. There's very few of them left. 
they claim to be related by the blood to the Jews of the ancient Samaria who were not deported by the Assyrian conquerors of the kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. See, these were the ones that were left behind because they were mixed breeds. And so they were hated by the Jews. <laughs> right? They were hated by the Jews because they were left behind and they kind of they kind of took all their properties and all that stuff that the Jews had worked for. They were left behind so that they could capture all that stuff. And they did not, there was battles and stuff with them also. They did not get along with each other at all. But when he saw the injured Jewish man, it says he felt compassion. See, first thing we see is that he opened his eyes to the problem. You know, although three men physically saw the critically wounded, only the Samaritan looked and stopped to help. This man's problem instantly became the Samaritan's problem. You know, before we can meet needs, we must be aware of what those needs are. Then we got to personalize them so they become important to us. See, this man's problems became the Samaritan's problem. Then it says he opened his heart. You know, the difference between the priest and the Levi's gaze and the Samaritan's was the Samaritan had compassion. The Samaritan saw the helplessness and suffering of this dying man and his heart went out to him. If I don't help him, he's going to die. If I don't have compassion on him, who will? The Levi and the priest, the pastor, the preacher, and the youth, uh, the preacher and the church workers just passed by, had no compassion whatsoever for him. The, the Samaritan took ownership. He opened his heart. Even though he knew that pausing in this dangerous road could result in himself being attacked or robbed, his compassion overruled his caution. So instead of being preoccupied with his own safety, he focused on the suffering of this man. Verse 34, and went down went, and went to him and wound, bound up his wounds, pouring oil, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So not only did he open up his eyes, he opened his heart, but we see here he also opened up his hands. The Samaritan didn't just feel sorry for this poor man. He relieved his suffering by pouring oil and wine on his wounds. You know, the, uh, uh, if he merely treated the wounds and left him on the road, it wouldn't have helped him much, would he? The Samaritan didn't leave him behind, but lifted him up on his donkey. The oil, by the way, was soothing to kill the pain. The wine, no doubt, purified it. It probably burned, but then the oil soothed. So he used the wine to clean his wounds, then he used his oil to soothe his pain. So he cared more than just getting the necessities, but trying to put the man in comfort as possible. He didn't just leave him behind. Verse 35, he brought him to the end, it said, to take care of him. In verse 35, and on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. So not only we saw already that he opened, we see that he opened his eyes he opened his heart. He opened his hands. Now he opened his purse. Since the Samaritan was on the journey, he needed to continue his traveling, uh, even though the injured man needed time to recover. No doubt he had business. 
So instead of simply dropping him off and leaving, the Samaritan paid the innkeeper to take care of him. Uh, these two pence was enough to take care of him for like two months. So it was going to be a while. He promised to return to repay him. And he said, look, I'm going to pay you for two months. And in two months, if the man still needs more, I'll, when I come back by, I'll pay you. So don't kick him out. Give him whatever he needs. And look, I'm, I'm going to give you two months pay up in front. So if he doesn't need that, you can keep it. See, he was willing to open his purse. But not only did he open his purse, not only did he, again, look at these things, not only did he open his eyes, open his heart, open his hands, open his purse, but we see also he opened his schedule. The Samaritan was willing to have his trip interrupted in order to help him. He put his journey on hold for a while in order to do that. You know, this is important. Sometimes we have to stop what we're doing to help other people. I'm reminded of that again today. I was just reminded of that. That I, there, there are important people that need help. I need to stop what I'm doing to help them. I need to break up my schedule. Yes, I'm busy. I'm busy all the time. But I should never be too busy to help someone who asks me for help. And, and you know, we sometimes get so busy with things of the world that we don't help other people. So then we see verse 36. And Jesus then asked, Now which of these think thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? See, Jesus, after giving the parable, now turns back to the lawyer and asks him, In his expert opinion, the same question on the table, Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And which of these was neighbor to the poor victim? The priest who offered up prayer and sacrifice to God daily, but walked by. The Levi, who's a church worker every day in the temple. Or the Samaritan, who is not even accepted in your society because of racial discrimination. Who among these is your, was the neighbor? So verse the first part of 37, he said, He that showed mercy on him. The lawyer, not even willing to use the Samaritan name, simply said he. He didn't recognize, he does though have to recognize that the Samaritan in this story was the only one that showed mercy to the poor man. The other two were unjust and breakers of the two commandments he had quoted regarding how to get to heaven. These two people, so the preacher and the church worker in the minds of this situation, was not going to inherit eternal life because they did not love their neighbor as the second commandment that the rich man, that the lawyer had said. So verse 37b, And Jesus said to him, Go and do thou likewise. Jesus then drives this point home, right? You know, recognize your lack of love for your neighbor. Now, you know, see, you know your issue. Everyone is in need is your neighbor, everybody. And yet that you cannot love God with all your mind until you love all mankind as your neighbor. If you have the love of God in your heart, you will love everybody. Will you like everybody? No. Jesus didn't like everybody. We know he 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 got on the the people that were the the thieves and robbers and drove them out of the temple with cords. He didn't like them. 
because of their actions, but he had compassion on their souls. See, Jesus says, now that you understand who your neighbor is, go and do thou also. But the only way this young, this lawyer could do what God wanted him to do was to have the mind of Christ. See, in conclusion, to love God is one thing. To love others is quite different, isn't it? In last week's lesson, we learned that we're to love those who hate us and want to do us harm with no expectation of return of favor or reward, right? You remember that lesson? Today we learned that love must extend to everyone who has a need. Uh, this is the one reason, one of the reasons we are part of a body of the church, right? There's no way one individual, you know, there's no way I can help everybody. I couldn't. I can't financially help people. But through the body of Christ, we contribute. We give our tithes and our offerings. And our church, our church is great. Our church does an outstanding job at meeting the needs of people. If anyone has a need, they come to our church and we give them. We meet that need. If they have a true need, we meet that need. We go out of our way to do so without any expectation of return. We put on events that we give things away to the community for people in need because they have a need. We have programs that we do each week that we provide food and backpacks and things of that nature to children who are in need. See, and I'm not bragging on our church. We're simply saying we're doing what God's command is to love our neighbors as ourself. I'm thankful that our church is our place where people with a real need can come regardless who you are. Even if you do not know you personally, we still assist you. Yes, our church does a great job at serving the command of God, but how about each of us individually? Do we see the need of others and just say, I will pray for you? Or do we do what James says in James 2, 14 through 18? What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say that thou hast faith, and I have, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou sayest that thou is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now who's your neighbor? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we have when we come to your house through this medium of the internet. For Lord, where two are gathered in your name, there you shall be also. So yes, today... Myself and the person listening are two gathered in your name. Therefore, we're in the house of God today. House of God, Lord, is not a building made out of bricks or wood, but Lord is a building where people are gathered. And so we pray, Lord, today that you would be in the midst of us as we join people, hearts and minds and souls together, that we would join in the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help this message here go forth as never before. Help us, Lord, to see that we must love you in all our mind, our body, our soul, but our mind must be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, help us have this mind in us like the mind in Christ, that we care for other people. Help us do like James said. Lord, let us show people our faith by our works, 
not that works get us into heaven, but Lord, that because heaven is in us, we do the works in this world. Thank you, Lord, for all you do for us. I pray the gospel is preached today. Lives are changed. Souls are snatched down the pits of hell and are set on the path for eternity because of the preaching and teaching of your mighty word through the mighty power of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Thank you for your time and your attention. Be a neighbor today.